Now I, I like to think I'm pretty good with remembering dates when it comes to people's birthdays, uh, anniversaries, those sorts of things. Although as far as I'm concerned, there's only one anniversary that I really have to remember and I've been good so far with that one. But generally with birthdays, I think I'm quite good, uh, particularly for like immediate family uh, and, and, and close friends. If you're sitting here thinking I've missed your birthday, please don't take that personally. Uh, say I think I'm quite good, but I'm not always great uh, with it. Since, particularly since being off Facebook, it seems like everyone knows when people's birthdays are through Facebook. So I tend to, I can miss out a little bit on that. Although Steph, my wife, is very good uh, at very helpfully uh, reminding me of when people's birthdays are coming. Because the truth is, sometimes it, dates can come and go without me even, even realising. They can surprise me, take me by surprise. I've not prepared for them. I've not expected, I've not expected them. But I have to, to say, I'm quite, I don't know, I'm not proud of this. Uh, but... I have never, ever been taken by surprise by Christmas. Has anyone here ever suddenly got to Christmas week and thought, oh, it's Christmas next week? Has anyone ever been in that place? No, because the build up to Christmas uh, is, is, is fairly long. There's lots of time to be prepared. For many of us in our houses, we will have uh, little thin boxes with doors on them and hidden behind those doors are often chocolates. We have advent calendars, which help us. The purpose of them is to prepare us and to have the countdown to Christmas. Also have uh, lots of events going on, carol services and different things like that. We were over in uh, Canterbury the other week. We were on holiday last week. We went over to City Church. I'd say we did miss being with you guys, but we had a good break and a good time away. So we went over to City Church. One of the elders there, uh, a guy called Jeff, he had written um, a little bit, kind of thinking about Easter uh, on their, their update things. And he said that actually the build-up to Christmas is long. There's not really an opportunity for you to be surprised by Christmas because the build-up to it is long. He says he's never been surprised by Christmas. But Easter can be different. Sometimes Easter can be upon us before we've even realised and then it's kind of gone and in the rearview mirror before we've even had a chance to reflect on what's happened. Do you know what? It's good for us to take time to prepare ourselves and to reflect. We do it at Christmas. I think we need to allow ourselves the opportunity to do it at Easter as well. Within the Christian calendar, particularly in, in perhaps the more traditional kind of denominations, there is that opportunity to prepare and to think about Easter, and that would be Holy Week. Uh, that's what it would, would be commonly known as, would be Holy Week. And Holy Week uh, really covers the final days of Jesus' life, starting with when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all the way through to the celebration of Easter Sunday, where we celebrate his resurrection and what that means for us. Holy Week is not a requirement. It's not something that we have to observe. It's not required of us, but actually it provides us with a brilliant opportunity as I say, to allow ourselves to be prepared, to allow ourselves to reflect and really connect with and engage with the events of that last week of Jesus' life. I read it put like this about Holy Week, and I would happen to agree. It is the most important week in the history of the world. Those, those, that last week of Jesus' life, the most important week in the history of the world. A guy named David Mathis, he's uh, executive editor of Desiring God, Org, and he kind of help, he makes a really helpful point in terms of actually what emphasis is given to that final week of Jesus' life, particularly in the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
which tell the story of Jesus' life, his death, resurrection. And actually, when you look at the weight that they give to that final week, it should tell us something about how important a week it is and why it deserves our time and our reflection. He says that the final eight of Matthew's 28 chapters are given to this one week. Bearing in mind, Jesus' main ministry was three years long. Along with the last six of Mark's 16 chapters and the final six of Luke's 24. Most significant, though, is John. Ten of the Gospels, 21 chapters, so essentially half of the book of John, deals with the final week of our Lord's life, his betrayal, his trials, his crucifixion, and his triumphant resurrection. It goes on to say that even Acts, which then narrates the life of the early church, it returns to the events of Holy Week very frequently. Indeed, it could even be said that all of the Old Testament anticipates this week. It's building towards this week. And then the rest of the New Testament reflects it, reflects it in theology and practical living. So all of the Old Testament is building towards this week. And then the rest of the New Testament kind of flows out from that. It's the outworking, the practical living based on what happens during that week. And I would encourage you, each of us, over Christmas, take some time. Take one of those Gospels. Over Easter. Thank you. <laughs> See, it's easily done. Take some time over Easter. Take one of those Gospels. Take those chapters and look at the events of that final week. And that's what we're going to be doing as a church. But we're not going to have a holy week, even though we've called the series Holy Week. It's going to be more of a, a holy month. Because rather than just having a week to focus, we're actually going to spend four weeks looking at some of the significant events that happen through this week to allow ourselves to get prepared, to allow ourselves to engage with what happened. We don't want Christmas, to, uh, I've done it again. We don't want Easter just to come and go without us having had a chance to really think about it. So this week we're going to be thinking about Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Next week we've got our family celebration. So we're going to be celebrating Freddie and Elise, praying for the families, having a great celebration together. The week following that, Mike's going to be picking up on Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper and breaking of bread. The week following, we're going to look at Good Friday, where Jesus was tried and crucified. And then Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, that death was not the end. That Jesus defeated sin and death. So that's what we're going to be doing. So that's going to be starting today and leading us right up into Easter Sunday. Again, when I was thinking about this and as me and Mike were, were thinking about what we were going to do over these weeks. I heard someone describe uh, Holy Week or this last week of Jesus' life really as a bit of a roller coaster of a week. In terms of when you look at the events... Um, in terms of, I don't know if highs and lows is the right way to put it, but in just in terms of, of what happens, we start with great joy, hope, expectation, but even there at the start there's tension, which leads to plotting, confrontation. Jesus faces, uh, encounters denial, betrayal, suffering, sacrifice and death, and then there's a period of silence and waiting. Does anything actually appear to be happening? And then the silence is broken with life, victory, and triumph. Can you see it is a bit of a, of a roller coaster of what's going on? 
But just at the very outset, so we're going to spend four weeks looking at this, but at the very outset, can I encourage you to give yourself to connecting with these events? To just allowing yourself to really think about what's being brought from, from here on the Sundays, but also to take that time over the weeks, to be engaging with what the scriptures say about that final week, about that holy week. You know, I often find, if, I, if I'm, say, I'm watching a film or, or reading or hearing a story, if I'm doing it for the first time, there's just that real excitement about, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen, but I'm enjoying the process of going on that journey of having the story revealed to me. For some of us, it could be that actually you've never really had the opportunity to think much about Easter. And for you, as we're going through it over these coming weeks, it's going to be like that, that first time where actually this story of this final week of Jesus' life, what he, went, what he went through, what that means for us, it's going to be like just hearing that story for the first time. Could I encourage you, really get hold of it for everything that you can. But then I also find with films, particularly films that wherever, you know you get those films where everything just seems to come together at the end. And it's just like that sort of a, ah, sort of moment. I kind of, I get it now. With those films, when I'm then watching them back another time, when I know what the outcome is, I watch it in a very different way. And I can draw different things out through the story where I can see where different things connect, where different situations have arisen, where perhaps I've missed it the first time round. And I can do that even if I'm familiar with films. Or with stories. As I hear them and as I watch them again, I can pick out different aspects. The reason I'm saying this is because sometimes we can become so familiar, particularly with the, with the Gospels and the story of Jesus, that we can think, actually, is there anything new in this for us? I've heard it many times before. There is a danger that we can become over-familiar and think we know. Can I just, at the, at the outset, again, just encourage us, let's really give ourselves to saying, God, what do you want to reveal to me? I may have heard the, the Easter story Many, many times. But God, what do you have for me? What do you want to draw out? Uh, that it's such a rich, a rich week for us to be looking into. You know, Eva's favourite film is B-Movie. Has anyone ever seen B-Movie? James is nodding. B-Movie, it's, it's, it's an hour and a half about bees. Uh, and it's, it's an animated film. And Eva loves this. I try and try and get her to watch some more films. I get about 10 minutes in and she's asking me to change the DVD. And it's always B-Movie. And I was saying to Steph, I was like, what have I watched it 20 times? And she's like, no, it's got to be more than that. So I reckon I've probably watched it in the last year about 30, 30 odd times. But even with that film, sometimes I'm watching it. I'm just like, I've never noticed that before. I've never spotted that before even with something that I feel I'm very familiar with and if I can do that with a film about bees and we've got the story the gospel story of Jesus it is rich it is life-giving it is good for us to engage with how much more should we expect God to allow us to to see to, to reveal more of the truth and the wonder of that to us so as I say, we're going to start this morning with Palm Sunday. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to John chapter 12. I've been fairly prepared this morning. I've actually given Hugh a list of the scriptures I'm going to be using, which is unusual for me. They're going to be up on the screen. So we're going to be in John chapter 12. The story of, of Palm Sunday of Jesus entering Jerusalem is actually in all four of the Gospels. So the, the first thing I had to do when preparing this week was decide which of the four Gospels I was going to go to. Uh, that took a little bit of time. But we're going to be in John. Now just to set the scene of where, of 
what we're going to be looking at while you're finding your way there. At this point, Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Passover would have been a time where the city of Jerusalem was absolutely packed with people. There's uh, some writings that say about 30 years after after um, the events we're looking at here, they, they reckon there was about 2.5 to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for, for Passover. So it was a busy, busy time. And at Passover, the Jewish people would uh, remember and would celebrate God leading them out of captivity under the Egyptians. And that was all part of what they were celebrating, the fact that they'd been liberated, the fact that they'd been brought to freedom and how God had done it. So that's why they were going. A little bit before this, sorry, before I say that, it's important for us to understand that, that Jerusalem was under Roman occupation and under Roman rule. So the people there, the Jewish people, the native people there, were actually being ruled over by the Romans. And there was a sense of they were waiting for, for a liberator, someone who would bring freedom to them, someone who would save them, someone who would rescue them. And they'd been living in the hope of, of, uh, of a Messiah, of someone who would bring freedom, actually for generations and generations. And they were thinking, is this the time where this Messiah, this promised one, is going to come. A little bit before Jesus and the disciples go into Jerusalem, Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. Jesus goes to him and he raises him from the dead. This amazing miracle. People are talking about it, as you can imagine. It's got people talking, have you heard about this Jesus and what he's done? But there's also a group called the Pharisees and they hear what Jesus has been doing, and they want him dead. They want him rid. They don't want him messing up the status quo and coming in and messing things up. They want him dealt with, and they want him out of the picture. So we've got all these things just to bear in mind as we look at this passage of Scripture today. So let's pick up from verse 12. So remember, Jesus and his disciples going down to Jerusalem. It says that the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, that, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we've got this crowd that come to welcome Jesus. We see that the crowd is made up really of two separate groups. We've got this group that have been with Jesus uh, and, and were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They were there. They were witnesses to what had happened. And as they're entering into Jerusalem, they're telling people about what they'd seen. Have you heard what Jesus has done? I was there. I've seen it. Let me tell you about it. And then we've got this other crowd who it seems are in Jerusalem, but they're coming to welcome, in, welcome him in. They've heard these rumors. They've heard these stories about what Jesus had done. They've heard about these signs and wonders, miracles and healings that Jesus had been doing. And they want to come and welcome him. They want to come and greet him as he enters into the city. The way that they react, the response that they give to Jesus is if they're saying, kind of thinking, is this the man who will bring us freedom? Is this the one who's going to bring us freedom from occupation? There's a sense of expectation, this excitement. Is this the one that we've been waiting for? And they take palm branches, which is where we get the name Palm Sunday from. And they get these palm branches, and palm, uh, was, it was the national symbol. 
So it's a very kind of something that they would have identified with their nation. And they take these palm branches. And I think in some of the other Gospels, it says that they were waving them in the air as Jesus was entering in. And as they were doing so, it's like they were signaling hope that a liberator was arriving on the scene. That was coming to bring freedom. It was a way of them expressing that visually. So they were waving palm branches. They were shouting, Hosanna. And Hosanna was a, it was a cry. It was a term of praise. Um, and if you were kind of to, to take it from the original Hebrew, it means give salvation now. It's that cry of, of wanting someone to come and save, someone to come and rescue. It's a cry for deliverance. It's a cry for rescue. So they're shouting this. So they're waving the branches. And they're shouting out this cry, Hosanna, bring freedom now. Not only that, they also say this phrase, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. If we were to go to Psalm 118 and pick up from, let's pick up from verse 24. This is a psalm of thanksgiving, really directed from Israel to God. It's about them rejoicing in the Lord's victory and rejoicing in the Lord's triumph. And it says this, it says that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Can you see the echoes of what the crowd were crying is what this psalm is saying. Hosanna, save us. Bring freedom, bring rescue. And then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The cries of the crowd are echoing this psalm. It's a cry of the people to their God. About rejoicing in the Lord's triumph. Wonder if they were thinking, you know what, perhaps this Jesus, this is the royal rescuer riding into Jerusalem to save his people. This, as an occasion, would have been joyful. Can you imagine? It doesn't say how big the crowd were. But think of how many people were there. If people were coming to see him, waving branches, shouting cries, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They've given him, they're declaring that title over him. Joyful, expectant, hopeful. They're welcoming Jesus as a king into Jerusalem. So we've got that group. And that welcome that Jesus is experiencing. But then these Pharisees that I've already mentioned, they're there again. It almost seems a little bit to me like they're kind of just in the background, chatting among themselves, watching about what is going on. We already know that as far as they're concerned, Jesus is not welcome. After they'd heard about Jesus raising Lazarus, they'd decided that they wanted him dead. And their reaction really is quite over the top and overstated. They say, you can see that we gain nothing. Look, even the whole world has gone after him. Look, everyone is after Jesus. It's obviously over the top, but you can sense there's this sense of almost like exasperation. Oh, Jesus is here and everyone's already gone to him. So even, even at the start of Holy Week with Jesus entering Jerusalem, can you see there's, there's tensions there already? There are tensions that are rising. I just want to go back to, to what I said from what David Mathis had said because remember this week the final week of the Lord's life deals with his betrayal, his trials his crucifixion that's where those tensions led to 
But it didn't end there because it finishes with his triumphant resurrection. So all of those things that happened over this week. I've just got a couple of observations really that I wanted to share with you. Things that jumped out to me when I was preparing for this morning. The first one is this. Is that Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. As he approached the city of Jerusalem, he knew what that week would have in store for him. It wasn't anything that was going to take him by surprise. If we go, we've already been in Psalm 118. If we go back there, a few verses before the ones that we read. In verse 22, it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone really being the keystone that the rest of the building was, was built around. It's a bit of a curious sort of phrase. A bit tricky for us to get our heads around. But in Acts chapter 4, so we're going to be jumping around a little bit. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter and John have, have healed a man, a guy who was unable to walk, healed him, and he, and he was able to walk. And they've been brought in front of the council and asked, uh, in what name were they able to do such a thing? And this is their response. Uh, it says, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Remember what we're saying about the cornerstone. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It was Jesus is the one who was rejected. You see, as Jesus heard the crowd, as they were reciting those cries from Psalm 118, Psalm 118 also says that there's a stone that's going to be rejected. As Jesus heard those cries, do you know, I, I think he, he would have known, actually, he was going to be rejected. There was going to be the element of it. Regardless of what the people were crying out to him, the praise and adoration that he was receiving, he knew that that week he faced rejection. Back into John, the passage that we're really focusing on this morning. Verse, verses um, Verses 14 to 16 says that Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The bit where it says about uh, the king coming, sitting on a donkey, is, direct, is, is taken from a prophecy from Zechariah, which we see in Zechariah chapter 9, which is promising that the king who is going to come. I think it's quite interesting. I think I'm very much like a disciple. I tend to work things out in hindsight. I might not understand things as they were happening. Jesus very deliberately arrived and entered Jerusalem sitting on a donkey because he knew what the prophecy had said about how the king was going to arrive. In doing that, even though the disciples at this point didn't understand, it says that actually after, after what happens a week later at Resurrection Sunday, and as they're kind of processing it all and working it through, then they understood what it meant for Jesus to be coming in on the donkey. At the time they didn't, but Jesus knew the significance. He knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy. He was showing himself to be the king that had been promised. He knew what he was there to do. He wasn't just arriving in Jerusalem just to see, let's just see how the week unfolds and what happens. He knew exactly what he was going to do and why he was going there. 
That's why he entered on a donkey the way that he did. Luke 18, verse 31 to 34. So again, this is before Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's actually when they're, they're on their way there. Jesus, uh, verse 31, 18, Luke 18, 31, says that when he took the 12, took the disciples, and he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will, kill, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And here we go. The similar thing happens here for the disciples. But they understood none of these things. At that point, they didn't understand them. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So again, when the disciples were entering in, they didn't really understand what was going to happen. And the fullness of what was going to happen and the consequences of them entering Jerusalem. But even when Jesus was preparing to go, he knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. To the point of explaining it to the disciples. He's saying, this is what's going to happen when we get there. You know, the rejection, persecution and killing of Jesus. It could look like a failure of Jesus' plan. When you look at it for what it is. At that point, it could look like it's a failure of Jesus' plan. But it is not a failure of his plan. It is actually the fulfilment of his plan. He knew when he was going in what he was going to face and why he had to face it. None of it was a surprise to Jesus. It was all part of the plan. Say for me, as I was thinking this through, just that realisation, do you know what? As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he fully knew what was going to happen. Yet he went anyway, because he knew what was required of him and he knew what it would mean. 1943, a guy named Richard James, he was a naval engineer, and he was tasked with, he was tasked with developing springs uh, to keep fragile equipment steady on ships, so it would, would protect the things. On one day, though, he knocked one of these springs off of the shelf by accident, and rather than seeing it just drop to the floor, he saw it walk its way to the floor. This man had just invented, without realising, the slinky. 1921. Is a, I don't want to say scientist because that's quite a broad term. Let me try and get a bit more specific. He was a bacteriologist and he was studying the influenza virus. And while he was doing that, he observed a mould that had developed accidentally on a culture plate that he was using. And it had developed a bacteria-free circle around itself. That bacteri bacteriologist was Alexander Fleming. And the active substance in, uh, in that mould was penicillin, discovered by accident. It's not something that he was looking for, but it just happened to come across it. So, you know, there, if you look into this, there are so many brilliant and wonderful and life-changing inventions and discoveries. When I say life-changing, I'm not talking about the slinky. That's the penicillin one. Although for some of you, I don't know, maybe. But brilliant inventions and discoveries that were made by accident. It just happened and something good came out of it. The reason I'm saying this is because in absolute contrast to that, nothing about this Holy Week was accidental. Nothing about it was involuntary. Nothing about it was just the result of afterthoughts. So oh, how can we make the best of a bad situation? It was never, ever that at all. John Piper says that Jesus wasn't accidentally entangled into some sort of a web of injustice. He's not just got himself accidentally caught up in something. 
the saving benefits of his death for sinners, they were not an afterthought. Holy Week, the things that we're going to be looking at, none of this was an afterthought, just God just kind of somehow bringing good out of it. None of it was an afterthought. God planned it all out of infinite love to sinners like us and appointed a time. Jesus, who was the very embodiment of his Father's love for sinners, saw that the time had come. He set his face to fulfill the mission to die in Jerusalem for our sake. No one takes my life from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. Isn't that wonderful? None of the the, the events we're going to be looking at happened by accident. They were all part of God's plan. I was following a conference that was going on in the States uh, called Just Gospel. I was following that on Twitter this week. And I read something yesterday or the day before that, again, I just think is so helpful for us to understand that Jesus knew what he was doing. Someone was quoted as saying at this conference that the death of Jesus was not a shot in the dark. He laid down his life for a people he knew that he would save. Isn't that amazing? It's not just a shot in the dark. Let's hope something good comes out of this. Jesus knew full well who he was going to save. He laid his life down for those he knew he would save. On our, our series graphic that we've got, I don't know how clearly you can see it, but on there we've got the city of Jerusalem. We've also got the cross at Calvary. For those, the crowds that were gathering around Jesus and welcoming Jesus, for the disciples, I'm sure they could see Jerusalem, entering into Jerusalem, enjoying the occasion, joyful expectation. At that point, they wouldn't have seen what was going to happen on the mount outside. But Jesus knew as he walked into Jerusalem, as he walked his way there, he would have seen not, not necessarily, I don't mean that he would have physically seen them, but he would have known, he would have seen the cross on the mount where he was going to be crucified. He would have seen that as he walked through. He knew what he was going into Jerusalem for and what was going to happen in that week. None of that week took Jesus by surprise. My second observation is this. The joy of Palm Sunday is a foretaste, just a taster, of the unmatched triumph that will come a week later at Easter Sunday. Shall I say that again? The joy of Palm Sunday is just a foretaste or just a taster of the unmatched triumph of Easter Sunday that will come a week later. The people wanted salvation. They wanted to be liberated. They wanted a Messiah to march into the city and put everything right. They wanted to be free from oppression. However that looked, whatever it took, That's what they wanted. That's why they welcomed Jesus in the way that they did. Here comes the king. Save us. Deliver us. But I wonder, what if they had got their way the way that they had wanted it to come about? In that instant freedom, perhaps, that they were hoping for. How long long would it have lasted if they were free from the, the physical oppression and rule that they were under? Actually, maybe it would have lasted a few generations. Maybe it would have lasted longer. We don't know, but one thing we can be sure of is that kingdoms, history shows that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. What if they had got their way? Or what if 
things had worked out the way that they had expected rather than the way that Jesus had planned for things to work, to work through. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Remember this is the, um, the prophecy where, that Jesus took his, his cue from in that sense to, to ride in on the donkey. When Jesus rode in on a donkey... When kings were at time of war, they rode horses. At times of peace, they rode, they rode on donkeys. The fact that Jesus arrived on a donkey signified that he was coming not with an attitude of, of war, not to establish a kingdom of war, but to establish a kingdom of peace. And again, this maybe wasn't what the people in Jerusalem at that time were thinking or what they were hoping Jesus came to establish a kingdom and rule of peace, not just for the people in that city at that time, but in such a way that through the events of Easter week, through his death, through his resurrection, through his defeating of sin and death, he's established a kingdom where we can know peace with God, where we can be reconciled to God. That's the kingdom of peace that Jesus was coming to establish. And the way that that was achieved. The way that that was accomplished again. Would have been very counter. What people would have been expecting. Jesus arriving on a donkey. A humble donkey. A symbol of peace. David Mattis who I quoted earlier says. Here Jesus here is a Nazarene. A backwater purported to have been conceived in shame. A common labourer by trade, riding not on a noble steed, but on the colt of an ass. He comes not to brandish his sword and demonstrate his quality for the popular expectations, but to give his own neck to the knife and display his meekness in uncompromised sacrifice. He comes not to kill, but to be killed. Accompanied not by generals and soldiers, but twelve bumbling companions, one of whom will betray him, another of whom will deny him, and all of whom will scatter when the real conflagration begins, when the real trouble comes. That's the way that our Saviour works. That's what he came to do. You have to forgive me, I've lost... My marker. Zechariah 9 verse 9. So remember where that prophecy about Jesus entering on a donkey was taken from. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is come into you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then it continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus, on his entry into Jerusalem, do you remember they proclaimed him the king of Israel? That was one of their cries, king of Israel. Jesus is not just the king of Israel. That prophecy that we just read says that actually he comes to rule with uh, a rule of peace, to rule with righteousness. From where to where? 
from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to establish a kingdom not just for a city, not just for a nation, but a kingdom that will cover the entire earth. And for all people, not just for one nation, not just for one people group. A kingdom of peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. This is for, for, again, a, a prophecy that's speaking of Jesus who is still to come. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and for when? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, that was the kingdom that he was coming to establish. That was the freedom that he was coming to bring. It was the rule of peace, not of war, not of violence, but of righteousness and of justice. Not just for one nation, not just for one city, not just for one people group. But uh, his government will know no end. It has no limit. It has no boundaries. It has no borders. It is unshakable. It is unending. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. So the joy that we see on Palm Sunday, the people with their joy and expectation, good, they should have been joyful because Jesus was coming. But it's nothing, nothing compared to the absolute, unmatched, unrivaled triumph of Easter Sunday because that is when that kingdom was opened up for all of us to be a part of. What wonderful, wonderful news. Shall we worship? If the band can come up, we're going to head back into a time of worship. Again, may I really encourage you to, uh, to really give yourselves over the coming weeks to just al- allowing yourself to work your way through this week, this final week from when Jesus entered into Jerusalem to when we come to celebrate in a little over a month's time the resurrection what that means for us. Really give yourself. Ask God. Spend some time with him. Ask him to just reveal the truths of what happened and the wonder of what happened and the significance of what happened to you. Shall we stand? Come and worship this wonderful Saviour.